Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, Dr. Michaela Guerrero is the founder and trainer at Awesome Code Review Workshops and host of the Software Engineering Unlocked podcast. Michaela joins us from Austria. Dr. Michaela Greiler, welcome to Maintainable. Hi, <laughs> thank you for the invitation. So as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software? Well-maintained software. I think that well-maintained software somehow doesn't go stale and doesn't get forgotten. I think the main problems with software, software come when people forget about it. So if the knowledge about the software somehow goes away, you know, people leave, there's not enough documentation, but also there's not enough testing because documentation is also something very static, whereby tests, even though they're also static, I feel they, they help better guide you through understanding the system again, right? So you can use them as use cases to really understand what does this do? What's, what's the expected behavior inputs and outputs? So it helps you understand the software. And I think that's, that's a good place. Well-maintained means that, you know, you, you always take a little bit work over time to improve it, right? So you go back and you learn something new because as we know, at the moment that we're creating the software, we normally have a very incomplete picture of how it should look like, be it, you know, the architecture or be it the market or even what the software is even supposed to do. I think we, we hope we know everything, but in the end, afterwards, we all realize that, well, we only knew 10%, right? And so going back and keeping that and, and working and improving that, I think this is really, really important. So whenever I created systems from scratch, I had like this idea of what it's going to be. And over time, it always evolved into something else. And I think when I when I lost this connection to the code that I, you know, I, I, I don't maintain it, I don't go back, I'm not, you know, updating it with the new knowledge that I got, and I'm not keeping myself, you know, informed of the system anymore, then I would say it, it starts to accumulate more technical debt and also, you know, it, it, it rots away a little bit. How do you define technical debt? Do you, or maybe a better question would be, what are things that you often find people miscategorize as technical debt? Do you feel like there's a clear distinction between, yeah, I'll just kind of leave that open as, as an open question for you. Yeah, so technical debt is, I think it was intended as something very specific by Cunningham. And now people use that term for so many things, right? Not only for the code base, but also for tests, for design, right? Like it, it's even for, for people and, you know, who is in a role. Um, so I definitely see technical debt very limited in that regard to software. Maybe the distinction that I find useful, right? Everything, this is a metaphor. And I think a metaphor is a little bit like a model. <laughs> so we, we try to abstract something complex to something simpler. And with models, what we say is, well, a model is never correct. It's either useful or not useful. And I think the same here uh, holds true for the metaphor. So I think we have to reflect in, in terms of how can it help us. And for me, technical debt is really in this, in this place where you take on, deliberately take on, you know, debt, make decisions where you know they are not the optimal decisions right now, as I said, right? So we, there's the unknown unknowns. But right now, you know, this is not the right thing to do, right? So this is deliberate technical debt. 
that you're taking on and you say, well, let's work on that later because we have, you know, a, a pressure to go to market, for example. And then there is this not delivered technical debt that you accumulate just because, right? Because right now you do your best, but you don't know everything and you will learn over time or because circumstances uh, change, because software evolves, your, your you know, dependencies uh, get updated. And I think that's also technical debt, right? So um, I think also this rot, maybe that's also what I meant with, with, with when I talked about maintain, maintainable code and how you have to be, you know, on top of it is that if you don't if you don't upgrade the the Python version at one point, I would say it's technical debt, right? So working with a two point something uh, Python version and you're not updating at one point, I think this becomes technical debt. Or you know working with with other dependencies that you have that you're not taking you know taking the care to to working on that. So I think there are two different distinctions that I think make sense. And there's definitely a lot of other technical debt definitions, um, but I th found those two the most useful. I, I know that a lot of teams or people that are, might be listening are in scenarios where they're like, well, we're working on new features and I showed up to a company and it was already out running on outdated stuff. They, it may not be very clear that like, someone intentionally decided we're not going to upgrade. It's just never got discussed or prioritized or ended up on the backlog or someone didn't you know, scrolled all the way to the top, like, this is important, we're going to do this on a regular basis. And that, and those sorts of, you know, you mentioned like rot is an, uh, another type of meta metaphor to use here. How would you, how do you kind of classify that? Do you think that's like some sort of implicit intention? I don't know. It's, it's different. It's, yeah. 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 It's definitely different. Right. So I don't want to picture this, uh, place where, you know, everything runs on the latest version and we always have to, you know, like have the newest and top, you know, top notch and cutting, cutting edge technology. I don't think that's what I want to say here. Um, I think that there are very great technologies that are long lasting, but there is a difference between, you know, are we not upgrading and are we, are we hindered by that? Right. And, you know, is it harder for us to do our work because we are not using something that would be better suited? Um, and maybe that's not supported anymore, that's deprecated or something like this, right? Or do we really chase this this newest and shiniest thing? I don't want people to, you know, chase the newest and shiniest thing, but I definitely think about like, should I update it or not? And as you said, sometimes people don't have don't have the time for it or do not have the priority or maybe they are not aware that, at that moment. So I'm actually doing a study, an interesting study with engineers right now where I'm interviewing engineers about, you know, their, their experiences as developers. And one of the things that I'm touching on is technical debt as well and, and other improvements, right? So just improvements of your work environment and when are you taking things on or not? And so for that, first of all, I have this research that I'm doing, but then I'm also reading a lot about proactiveness, which I think is very related to that and what enables people to be proactive and what you know there's always a risk and there's also a cost benefit analysis that is done on a company level where you say well does it make sense now from a cost perspective and a benefit perspective to upgrade let's say python again right uh, 2.0 to 3.8 or whatnot right what's the changes here is a drastic change right <laughs> so what are we gaining from doing this but then also on an individual level and on a team level we have again a cost and benefit cost and benefit relation where people have to think about 
why I'm doing this? Am I pushing for this, right? And so what, what I'm investigating right now with my research is really what enables people on a team to be more proactive, to do something um, and, and to take on improvements without, you know, upper management telling them, oh, we are going to upgrade now, right? Uh, but really for them to, to understand their environment and say, well, if I'm seeing something that's not right, that's really hindering us, am I going to take action to improve that either individually or as a team? And what hinders me? It could be, for example, that you need buy-in from upper management or it could be that you're taking on personal risk. A lot of those things are also connected to, well, do we actually know how much it costs us, right? <laughs> what it, how expensive is that? And I think a lot of, uh, especially senior engineers, they have sort of an understanding of how expensive technical debt is because it's not the same, right? So for, for parts of the software or the code base that never churn, that are not changing, it doesn't cost us anything, right? Or not, not a lot. But then for parts where we are touching the software quite a bit, it can actually drastically slow us down or introduce more bugs or more errors and so on, right? And so I think most of the time people only have like gut feelings around that. And so because of that, it's really hard to then say, oh, now I'm going to proactively change that, right? <laughs> because how, how I'm going to show that the situation before was that, and the situation afterwards is so much better. And the time that I invested, you know, is worth it. Um, yeah. So don't know if this answered your question, but at least that. <laughs> that that's, a, that's great. I, I'm going to definitely want to follow up with you at some point to learn more about more of your findings from your study. I like, you know, thinking about the idea of being proactive. And it's interesting because it's like that's one of my company's core values. But I also think it's one of the hardest values for, ever, for us to embrace because, even like if you think about like on a like let's just say like depend keeping updated with dependencies, unless you're actively like managing that dependency and like like an open source dependency, you know there's a new version being dropped and released and shipped to like we use Ruby, so Ruby gems and things like a Ruby gem package might get released. So it already feels reactive to a new update, like, oh, there's a new thing. We need to we now we need to make a decision. How do we plan ahead to like, how will we handle new updates and keep those regularly to stay on top of them or whatever? How do we automate it to some degree and feel confident that we don't have to say, oh, we'll have to go look at that at some point. And then what, 10 versions later, you're like, oh, oh no, we, we've, we've not kept up. But also sometimes it feels like, well, maybe doing like bumping up 10 versions at once feels easier than doing one by one by one by one, 10 times. So so I'm curious to see learn more from your uh, your your study when you're when you finish wrapping that up. I, I'm I'm really curious. I know that one of the topics I also really wanted to get into with you was because I know it's something you focus a lot on, which is code reviews. And so, before we dig into maybe say ideal code reviews, what do you believe are some misconceptions that you've heard conveyed by software engineers about code reviews? I think the biggest misconception is that everybody thinks code reviews are skill or doing good code reviews are a skill that comes out of the box, right? So everything else we have courses for testing, right? Readable code even, um, how to use a framework, you know, how to teach. But then for code reviews, I don't, I mean, it, it's coming a little bit, but I don't really see people tell others how to read code, how to review code, how to give the feedback on that code, right? So there are plenty of um, resources and courses and workshops around, and everybody thinks that's um, that makes sense, 
right? To do another course on testing or understand how to test a React system. And then we learn how to test Java, JavaScript systems or JavaScript systems and so on. Integration testing, unit testing. But then code reviews is something, oh, you know, there is this feature that GitHub or GitLab or Bitpacket has, which is a pull request. And we learned how to do pull requests uh, by, you know, whatever, either through the interface or <laughs> through the command line. And so now we are doing code reviews, right? It's just, well, the code is in front of your eyes, you're saying something about it and that's the code review. And I think this is the biggest misconception. Yeah, and I think that's, that's what's so hard about them because now people are starting with this mentality of you know doing code reviews, well, you just do a code review. Maybe people are a little bit observing and learning by observation and imitation from other engineers, how they are doing code reviews, but there is not really something explicit about that. And I think people are not even allowed to say, I actually don't know exactly how to do code reviews or how to do them in a good way. And it's really complex practice. It's not an individual practice, it's a, it's a team practice. So I have the technical skills that I need, I have the social skills that I need, and then I have the organizational skills that I need, right? So we have three skills here. I think it's a highly complex practice and, and nobody really talks about it and it's actually quite hard to do them right. Yeah, that's I'm kind of, I'm really excited to kind of dig into this with you because it's it's been interesting watching this transition over the years and, you know, there'll be a lot of like emphasis on like, here's a template for how to submit a pull request to someone, right? I've seen some conversations around like, and doing a little bit of research for our conversation and watch some of your videos. And you make a lot of good points around like about phrasing things. And I'll let you kind of dig into that a little bit more too. But like, so there's kind of like, how do you submit a pull request for review for someone else? Like that's an important step. And then there's the how to respond or how to give a review, how to conduct a review and give someone feedback on the, on the code that they've, they've submitted to you. And then there's this other third piece that I've also I'm really curious about is like how to accept the feedback that you're getting on your code review without taking it. So like, there's a lot of things that go into that. So you don't feel like that. So maybe we can kind of walk through, uh, maybe we don't need to go into how to submit the the PR in the first place, unless you feel like there's something you think that is pretty commonly disrupt problematic about it. I mean, and I, 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 and I do know that there's challenges with teams where you might pick people that you think, are the best person to respond to your feedback based off of their skill set, or you know that they're going to be the quickest to approve it, which can be problematic too. So I think there's there's a lot of dynamics around how to. It's like because we do code reviews now, are we doing them well? And I think that's a that's a that's a good point that you're making there. So maybe if you want to pick one of those three different stages of a pull request, maybe that second phase of like, okay, someone sent me, I'm, I'm I am now going to review someone's code. And it could be a peer on the team, could be a junior developer that's just coming in, or it could be a senior person on the team that's sent over something my way. What are some things that I should be thinking about in that scenario? Yeah, so <laughs> a couple of things here. So maybe I'm really going completely back, a few steps back, and then we look at code reviews. And I think the first thing we have to ask ourselves is why? Why are we doing them? Right, because only with this why we can answer whether or not it's good in in that respect, right? And so, if you look at code reviews, code reviews can be beneficial for finding bugs, or for improving the code base, make it more readable, more maintainable. That can be motivations to do code reviews. That could be our why. 
It could be also that people know something about the no uh, code base, right? So knowledge sharing, which comes back to maintainable code, I think. <laughs> um, so more people know about parts of the code base that they wouldn't know about if we are not doing code reviews. Awareness, what's going on in our team? Learning, mentoring, oh, how is that person doing that? Or there's a new API or a new framework, you know, how maybe best practices. Um, so there are a lot of things that actually can happen um, in code reviews that are motivators for doing code reviews. I think the first problem starts if we want all of them all the time, right? So we want everything. To be very frank, it's just not feasible. If you also want to move fast, you know, there's also a relationship between speed and value of the feedback because it can be the best feedback, right? Everything, like I learned something and there is, the, the code would be, became more maintainable. It, the code base is improved and so on. But if I wait like a month for that, what's the value of that, right? Or a week for that, what's the, what's the value of that, right? So there's a relationship between value cost spent. It, it has to be seen in proportion to the value that you're getting out of that, right? This is the first thing that I would say. And um, I'm a really big fan of goal-oriented work, right? So if, if we're doing code reviews, we should know why. And then if we go to one single code review, and this can be a, you know, a whole thing for a team or for a division or even for company, right? We are doing code reviews mainly to improve the code base or mainly for knowledge sharing, right? Or maybe there are two goals that you have at the same time that you try to, to juggle. It could be also that, for example, your division that has, let's say, hardware, software that you can't still can't update so easily. They are more focusing on improvement of the code base and bug finding. And then you have like the other division that has a very rapidly changeable system on the web, right? Um, that you can update every day. So they may be looking a little bit more for knowledge sharing and, and you know, awareness. Anyway, you, you will get out all of those aspects from code reviews, but you know, not all at the same time and not all in the same degree. And so now coming back for each of the code changes, you can actually ask yourself, what do I want to get out of that? And I think this should be on a team level, but also on an individual level. It's so important that the code author thinks about what do I want to get out of that, right? So, and then depending on that, you can add the right people. So if I want somebody to find bugs, then we know from empirical studies, well, you should pick somebody that's rather senior and has seen the code before, has seen your code base before. They are the best to find bugs and problems, right? So if this is a high risk code change, this is what you're going to do. You ask probably even two people, right? Depending on the risk to review that. If you say, well, this is actually a low risk code change, uh, but it's a, a great piece for somebody to learn, well, you will pick a completely different person to be on that code review. Obviously, you can have like a common strategy around where you say, well, there always has to be one person, you know, you know, or two people on the code review to look through your code. It's a very complex thing, but the most important is that it's that it's goal oriented and really that you're purposeful, right? That you think about why why I'm doing this. And then it's really a lot about how to give the feedback and what feedback. I, I love to think about code reviews always in this. I have like a, a draw, I drew a picture. There are two people. It's you can you can find it. I think overall on on the internet, not that one that I drew, but um, the same thing. But there are two people, and they're looking at the number, and the number is a six. And if you look at the six, right from the top, well, it's a nine. 
And if you look from it from the bottom, it's a six, right? And so the people are standing opposite to each other and they're looking at the same code base. And so the good thing about code reviews is that you have another person looking at the same thing and they're seeing something else. Right? Then that's actually why we do code reviews. If they would see exactly the same as I see, I don't have to send out the code to somebody else. But on the other hand, this is also the conflict of code reviews, right? Because another person looks at my code base and sees something completely else. They come in with their different perceptions, with their different experiences. And so now they say, well, it's a nine. And I say, no, it's a six. It's a nine. No, it's a six. <laughs> and so I think it really, it really comes back to a lot of social skills, understanding um, and valuing the perspectives of others in both regards. What is important to people? What should we look for um, in code reviews, right? And what are some of those a little bit problematic areas where we say, well, for example, documentation, readability, maintainability is definitely one of those topics where we say, is there a right or a wrong? Well, there are only different perspectives. And so now we have this conflict potential here to really decide, you know, how we're going forward here. And, and I think for this, it's so important that engineering teams really have engineering values that they work on um, and understand and clear guidelines and clear rules for how code reviews should actually be done from a technical point of view. And then from the, the social side, right, it's how to phrase it. A lot of people don't take the time to really phrase the feedback appropriately. They think, well, it's okay, right? Uh, it's okay if I just say, oh, name this differently or I don't like that. But we, we have to think about that it's very often it's in written communication, right? So we are not even seeing each other. And even if we feel that we are, you know, in sync and have a good team culture and a good relationship, feedback can really be hurtful. And so I think we always should be very careful on how to phrase it, make sure that we are not hurting feelings. And there are rules around that, right? As you said, I have a couple of things, blog posts about that, also YouTube videos where you can, can you know, see or, or watch. There are a couple of rules. One important one is, for example, that you make it about the code and not the person, right? So instead of saying, oh, you requested that service multiple times, you say the code requests the service multiple times. Mm. Um, nice subtle change there. A subtle change, yeah. It's subtle, but it, it definitely removes the... Uh... Per, making a personal feeling in some ways, or you don't interpret it like, "Oh, I did, the, I made a mistake." Yeah, it gets rid of the blaming. Yeah, and then you have, for example, another thing that I—it's very easy to do, um, but really, really powerful—is to own your own feedback, right? So instead of saying a general statement, "This code is not performing well," you could say, "I think uh, this code," or "I, I, I," you know, "I expect." something like this, right? Really to own your own feedback. So it's not a general statement, but it's really about what you saw here. Try to be as objective as you be, uh, as you can, right? So instead of saying not performing well, which is an evaluation, you try to make it more an observation. You say, oh, the thing loops through, you know, through um, the, the loop n times, which, you know, might not be that performant. Can we do it in a different way? Yeah. So it was a very long answer to your question, but... <laughs> That's, that's great. The, uh, one of the things that I've tried to do when I'm looking at, when I'm conducting a code review, especially, you know, it's like trying to avoid using the word like you um, is important. And then there's also, but also to, but that doesn't mean not to use the word I. So it's not removing people necessarily from it entirely because it's like, well, this is my perspective or 
my curiosity. So one of the things that I'll often find myself is when I'm not, I don't really know sometimes what something might, what, what if I'm worried about something might happen. I'm, sometimes I might, maybe I'll use the word like, I might worry about this, or I am curious what would happen under this sort of scenario. And so it's more of like, I don't know, I'm trying to be very not definitive, because I don't really know unless I can go through and and sometimes we don't have the necessarily the time or the luxury to do a thorough testing of all those different things that it's like to spot check and be like, oh, I went and ran it through some some weird edge case that I thought about. Is there, there might not be value in me doing that, right? And so, but I'm curious about it and had that person considered that. So I'm worrying, wondering like things about advice for people like me, maybe where if you're in that scenario, where like I'm curious about something and I don't want to assume that they didn't think about it, but it's not conveyed. So how do you, how would you go about recommending that I confirm, yeah, like an assumption or something? I really like what you said here is that, well, I'm curious, right? And I think the most important is that we see the code author as the main expert of this code piece, because they probably spent more time on this code than you did. And they thought about edge cases and, and, and issues, but obviously they could also have missed something. And, and, really trying to frame that in this conversation and in this dialogue. And I like that, that you actually had a dialogue, right? You were opening up for discussion and being very authentic to say, well, I'm curious. I didn't have time to, you know, to check it completely, but I'm curious, have you thought about this? Or, you know, could that be a problem here? I think um, authenticity and being very humble and trying to think about how can I add the most value to the other person here? Framing it in that, that way, I think, is the right strategy, right? So how can, instead of, oh, the code is the most important, or I am the most important, right? Oh, I found something. I want to look really smart here for, for in front of my peers, right? I found something. I found a problem here. Thinking about, oh, how can I frame that in a way that it's really valuable to the person that receives the feedback? And, and I think that's, that's the best way forward. We'll be back with our interview with Dr. Michaela in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I wanted to take a moment just to say thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and a writing review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. Also, do you know someone in the industry that I should be interviewing on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, back to our interview with Dr. Michaela Greller. I know that there's a number of junior people who listen to the podcast. So maybe speaking to them, like where there's some, I've seen juniors like get really nervous about like, oh, I'm doing something wrong because they got a lot of feedback on a pull request, you know, and they're like, oh no, I'm not, I could start getting into this, you know, getting into imposter syndrome. Like, I don't know what I'm doing because I've made some mistakes here. I don't fully understand yet. Do you have any advice for people like that, that are kind of going through that and like knowing that it's going to be okay at some point? Yeah. So, (laughs) Um, yeah, there are a couple of things, right? So first of all, there like alone, the amount of comments can be very intimidating, right? Like you made that and you think, oh, it's great. And I'm really proud of it. And you spend a lot of time and then suddenly like, like, I don't know, 30, hundred comments, right? Whatever. Like a 30 is already a large number where you think like, wow, so many comments. And, um, I think 
the amount is definitely something that can be intimidating, but I would really phrase it as a learning experience, right? So if you think about code reviews, I actually think if you think about them as your personal coach, they're really, really valuable, right? Um, if you wouldn't be on that team, if you wouldn't get that, that feedback, it would be hard for you. You have to watch hundreds of YouTube videos or, you know, Udemy courses or, you know, Pluralsight or whatnot training websites there are or go somewhere else to, to get the same knowledge that's so tailored to your needs, to the problems that you actually have. You can really apply what you hear here. There are also a different problem in, uh, apart from like just the, the amount could be that it's not phrased in a, in a nice way, right? So it's like rename this to, I don't know, customer ID, which isn't, it's not, I mean, one, it's not really bad. It's not harassment, right? <laughs> but like if you get like 20 of those comments, it's also not nice. And actually probably if you would be in front of somebody, you would not demand and say, rename that. Right? Somebody would probably ask you, oh, look over here, I think we should rename this. And I think that's, that's such an important perspective, again, on code reviews that I, I watched hundreds of engineers do code reviews. And we get very, very technical here, right? We look at code, we are in our IDE or, you know, in this IDE-like environments, like let's say somewhere on a, on a source code repository platform, and we look at the code and we... We are going through the steps of what the code does and trying to understand it. And then at the same time, we are, we are writing down notes and they're very mechanical. I have seen it over and over. Even the best and most experienced is like variable name should be different, right? Or maybe they just write down the variable name that they wanted there to be, or this is slow. This is, you know, like this is the way of thinking that you have, but it's not really a way of thinking how to communicate with another person. So if you would do peer programming, I don't think you would think in that way, right? So you would be triggered, your mind would be triggered for these social interactions and you would phrase it and you would be different and you would be very careful how to say it. Not everybody, but a lot of people, definitely more careful than if they are in this in this other world. I call it other world, right? In the world of their, of their computer with their code and they don't see the other person that actually gets it. And I think, so it's really important to go back and, and improve that. And if you look, for example, if you watch senior engineers or people that are uh, trained and aware of that, they, they still, they are not writing, oh, what about rewriting or renaming this variable to custom ID? They still write rename custom ID, but then they go back, they remember, oh, Actually, there's a person that gets that and they re rephrase that, right? And so as a junior, if you just get rename this and do that and that's not performing and so on, I think I would remember that most of the time it's not malice. It's just miscommunication, right? People are also, you know, the other side is not trained. They are not aware of what's happening here and how that actually affects other people. Really, only a few people are unfortunately really aware of how that affects others. And then with written communication, what you have, and there are a lot of studies around that, right? The problem is that you don't even see what, it, what, what happens to the receiver because most people don't go and say, oh, this was actually harsh. You know, after reading the tense comment in a demanding tone, I felt really shitty. <laughs> people don't do that, right? They just feel it and you're so disconnected from this. And so, yeah, reminding that that's happening. And if you, if you dare to do it, if your organization, you know, if it's, if you feel safe enough, I would speak up and say, actually, it didn't feel so good to get that feedback. 
Yeah, also for the maybe if there are seniors listening, instead of like having hundreds of comments, just having an over-shoulder review would probably be nicer for a junior person, right? Like going with them and talking with them about the stuff. It makes me wonder about like the interfaces that we're using in some ways and wondering how much they could be continue to be evolved to remind ourselves that we're, yes, we're having conversations about the code, but we're having them with our peers. And it's like, you might, like, cause it's even thinking about like a GitHub interface for a pull request. It's like, who submitted it? Like you see a little avatar at the corner or whatever. If, if they even like added their photo, you know, it could just be a little weird little default graphic or something. So it's like, it becomes this weird, it's like, you know, someone worked on this, but it still gets, becomes a little bit further removed from it. It's like, we're having conversations about the code. So we try to keep it as dry, technical as possible and clear and concise. So it's very, I almost wonder, so worry that sometimes people are trying to be when they're like, oh, you get to a point where there's like a lot of changes. Like, well, if we just do this and do this, do this, we're like, I'm making the to-do list easier for you for not, by not having to add a lot of maybe for lack of a better term fluff around the, like the nicety, right? So you get like... Yeah, privity is something that's high on the list of engineers, right? I want to be uh, short and on the point and don't, you know, but it's actually really harmful, yeah. And I wondered the same thing, like how could we actually make interfaces? And I think it has a lot of to do with that. We are in this interface and we don't realize that we are impacting another person's life. And there is like, I have this Grammarly extension, which somehow it detects a little bit your, your, your tone, but I don't know, it's not really helping. I like, yeah, I don't know how your experience, but I, I look at it and think like, it would be nice if that would work, but no, <laughs> it's not working yet. <laughs> no, I'm also thinking around like how often teams might have some sort of like feedback cycle for after like asking both people or ever not even assuming there's just two people in a pull request or a code review process, but having some sort of uh, like rate your experience of like through this process type of thing, like how helpful was the feedback and how did you feel? Like, you know, I don't know. I don't know that I'm, I'm not the right person to, to, to figure that stuff out, but it, that, that makes me just wonder, like there could be more conversations about it because we don't often give feedback to the person that gave us re a review on outside of sometimes it's like when I mean, it's super helpful and say we say thank you you know because you want them to do it again for you in the future right and be prompt and, and quick to respond to your so you can get the thing shipped right so i think it's important i think yeah, it's it's probably the same right it's the double double-edged sword on one hand you a sword you don't understand if somebody has hurt feelings because they seldomly speak up and say actually you know i didn't feel right here it's also often not really allowed, like feelings, like we really try. And I think this is the most hurtful thing. Like I try to keep my feelings out of code reviews, right? <laughs> when I'm reviewing code, I try to be so objective and no feelings. But that's not, I mean, that that's not how people work, right? If you get feedback, you will have feelings. There is your amygdala that will react. And it's one of the, the you know, structures of our brain that reacts the most to threats, for example, and to feedback. <laughs> and so it will be triggered. And so to say, oh, I'm not putting that into, because I want it to be so professional and so technical, I think this is not the right approach here. And yeah, so definitely. So I know just quick, quick couple of quick last questions I wanted to touch on with you. One, you know, for, you know, as I mentioned, you, you conduct workshops for teams. Uh, for those listening, it might be curious about 
you know, asking uh, if there's budget in their cycle for maybe reaching out to you to do a workshop, what types of teams would best benefit from it? Like, is there kind of like a size range you typically find yourself working with? No, it's really, really, it's really different. Different. Um, I work with really large organizations and I work with smaller organizations, with startups um, even. And um, the only thing is like, if you have really large organizations or bigger teams, my workshops, you know, are limited by how many people I allow for one workshop. So there would be then, you know, a couple of workshops. Um, that's the only thing. And then I haven't had a team that didn't do code reviews, right? So all of them do code reviews in some capacity. I would even say they are, you know, they are doing it very regularly. So it's really helpful for them and, and valuable for them to improve that. Uh, but then it's, you know, the experience level also, again, varies quite a bit. Uh, very often I even have very advanced engineers that are coming to my workshop. And sometimes I have like um, junior engineers, sometimes I have mixed groups. And, you know, I think... It really depends um, on the group. I always, like if, if it's a company workshop, I have a couple of people, I always tailor it to their needs. So I have, I have a, like a call before to figure out what would be the best. Um, but so, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't think there is like this kind of team that would benefit the most. It's if you, some teams really struggle and some teams are even having a quite good code review practice and, you know, want to get better. Uh, so, yeah, it's really a variety of people that come and do my workshops. Nice. Well, I'll definitely include links to that in the show notes for, for folks listening and that are curious. Um, also, I wanted to quickly mention, you know, you, you have a podcast as well called Software Engineering Unlocked. Uh, what prompted you to start it and what types of topics are you primarily focusing on there? And I'll definitely include a link to that as well in the show notes. Yeah, thank you. So it was the time that I left Microsoft and I was helping Microsoft internal engineering teams, so 40,000 people to improve their software engineering practices. And I was working with them on code reviews, uh, testing and, and build. So I came out and I was like, oh, I want to understand more about how other organizations do, you know, different stuff, software engineering practices. How does it work there? How is the work culture? And so this is actually how it started. And so what I do, it's an interview show, interview-based interview show. And I mainly ask people about their software engineering practices. How does testing work at their organization? How do you do code reviews? How do they handle technical debt? But then I also ask them about work um, life balance, work culture, um, and also a little bit about how they actually got there, right? So the journey, the, the interviewing experience. So yeah, this is, this is what this show. Is there a non-software, say non-technical book that you find yourself recommending to people that work in this industry on a regular basis? Oh, yeah, I don't, it's not technical. It's not, it's not software and so on, but it's, it's, it's not a fiction roman, right? One of the books that I highly, highly recommend and that's so influential for me is Essentialism. It's great. I listen to it like always in pits and pieces again and again and over and over. It's more, more, it's mainly focusing on the one and essential things in your life, right? So what's really important to you and reducing all the non-essentials and making you less busy, more focused. And I think this is, for me, this is so important and I really try to embrace this. I'm practicing, right? I'm not, <laughs> I'm not perfect, obviously. I'm probably someone that really needs this book, right? Because I'm, I'm a person that accumulates a lot, very ambitious. And like, if somebody says, oh, look here, Michaela, do you want to do that? Yes, yes, yes. And so really trying to think, what are the essential things that you have in your life? How do you say yes to those? 
And how do you say no to all the other stuff that, you know, comes and distracts you? And so, yeah, I, I love that book. I think it's also really important for software engineers, like starting with your tools, what are the most essential tools and then really being good at them. I think that's a great philosophy, right? So having one IDE and knowing the ins and out there and then trying to not get distracted by, you know, everything that, I mean, we have so much going on, right? Like so many new technologies, so many things. And so I think this can be really applied here as well. Excellent. Well, definitely, I'm going to look that book up myself, and then I'll include links to that in the show notes for the audience as well. So where can listeners best follow your thoughts on software development and engineering and code reviews online? Yeah, I'm sometimes regular on Twitter, not always. I always take breaks, again, with this centralism where I think, yeah, yeah, exactly, where I'm not that active, but I'm always on it again, and then I'm sharing more, and then I'm sharing a little bit less there. I have also a blog. Um, you can find it through the awesome codereviews.com website. Um, it's a little bit easier to type than my name, but my name would be michaelagreiler.com. You can link that as well. So there is really the blog that I'm uh, talking about. I have a YouTube channel where I'm also like in waves <laughs> submitting and, and publishing stuff and the podcast. Yeah. Excellent. So those are the things. Well, it's been such a delight having you join us on Maintainable, Dr. Michaela. Uh, thank you so much for talking shop about code reviews and with us. Yeah, it was really my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. And thank you so much for the invitation.